Well, good evening, everyone. Hello, I'm Hayley Channer. I direct the Economic Security Program at the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. And uh, before I sort of get into tonight, I wanted to reflect on Australia's present and its future by thinking about its past. And that requires acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet. The University of Sydney uh, is on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I want to pay my respects to their elders past, uh, present and emerging. And I think the emerging part means they're the young people. So I really want to acknowledge them. And also just before um, just leaving that subject, actually reflect on Australia's very, very long history of trade. So even as far back as the 1700s, we had Aboriginal people from Northern Australia trading sea cucumbers with people from the island of Sulawesi, now Indonesia. And you flash forward now to 2023, and it's not so much sea cucumbers that we're trading, but we're trading a lot with China and uh, we're trading with our iron ore, gas, coal, and we're also exporting our education. So China is now our largest trading partner. About 40% of Australia's total trade goes to China. And so that is a major country for us to think about. Um, and there's a fantastic uh, topic for us to discuss tonight, and that is um, how Australia can really manage uh, US-China trade battles, considering China is our closest trade partner and the United States is our closest security ally. And of course, I would think that this is an important topic being the director of the Economic Security Program, um, but I really do think it's an important topic for Australia broadly, no matter which sector you come from, uh, something to do with trade and economics and China is affecting so many parts of Australia right now. And so to discuss these issues, uh, we have a visitor from New York City, Daniel Rosen, and uh, we at the United States Studies Centre brought him out from New York to have a whole bunch of meetings, firstly in Canberra and now in Sydney. Um, I was with Dan for the last couple of days in Canberra and he met with all of the very senior people in Canberra, our, our department secretaries. We had meetings at Treasury uh, with the Foreign Affairs and Trade, with our Office of National Intelligence. Um, and Dan is really highly sought after for his expertise around the world. Um, when we weren't in meetings, Dan was being called by media or he was writing op-eds. I thought that after our um, industry lunch today, he would go and relax at home, but no, he didn't. He had to do some more work. Uh, so we're very lucky that somebody who is sought after by governments all around the world to talk about China and economic issues is here to give us that expertise for free tonight. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, the group that Dan founded, Rhodium Group, and I'll also open with a question on Rhodium Group. But basically, um, Rhodium Group is what I would describe as a hybrid between a traditional think tank, which does public policy work, uh, and a consultancy. And Dan first started Rhodium in 2003, so it's now 20 years old. Um, but before that, Dan actually advised uh, Bill Clinton in the Clinton administration as a senior advisor for international economics. He advised the National Security Council and the National Economics Council. And so he really brings this wealth of experience over the last 20 years and also working in the White House. Um, so, Dan, what I might do now is um, just invite you, I guess, to talk a little bit about Rhodium Group. I know that it does public policy analysis, um, in the areas of China's economy, its society, its politics. You're also looking at 
energy and climate change and India's emergence. But considering Rhodium Group doesn't receive um, a lot of public money, um, you spend a whole amount of your year, you know, half of the year doing public policy work for free. Uh, why is it that you do that? Are you secretly independently wealthy? <laughs> um, Haley, thanks so much for uh, having me out um, this week and, and for this opportunity to have this session with you and the audience here. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here, to be back in Australia. Um, Rhodium does do uh, a lot of public policy work. Um, when we do that, we do it in partnership with a think tank. There are a half dozen think tanks that we're actively involved with around the world right now. Uh, it's not entirely free. The staff time costs are covered. Um, you're not going to get rich doing think tank studies. But um, having spent a, a lot of time both in the think tank sector, one year in government, as you noted, and then a lot of time interacting with uh, companies, uh, both financial and corporate, um, I can say that if you're only doing commercial advisory work, then you don't have the necessary time to sit and do the long cycle research required to figure out what's actually making China tick. Um, that probably applies to other economies as well. The one I know something about really is China's and a little bit, little bit on India, as you mentioned. Um, but it is really complicated. It's um, a big, uh, diverse story of uh, uh, unusual political uh, system, uh, a unique economic journey that the country's had, and to put all that together in a way that can help anticipate what's going to happen next, which is uh, what it's all about at the end of the day, is awfully hard to do if you're just, you know, a just a consultant uh, doing your consulting work as well as you can possibly do it, you're not going to have time to to do the deeper thinking about what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, Rhodium over the past decade has built databases that track virtually every cross-border foreign direct investment uh, transaction in and out of the Chinese economy, for example, by corporations. And that's given us one of several lenses that we use to, you know, uh, offer an opinion on things like, you know, is global business really starting to lose its appetite to deal with the challenges of being in China? Um, there's a lot of opinions about that, but to offer a more systematic answer, you have to do a lot of long cycle accounting work and evaluation of what the data actually say. And you can't do that if you're just uh, taking client calls. Mm. Okay, great. Well, that sets us up perfectly. So now I know what Rhodium Group does. Everybody else here does as well. So let's get into the topic that is uh, the focus of tonight, which is China-US uh, economic battles. Um, but first of all, just to give us all a foundation to have this discussion, I actually wanted to understand the story up until now. So obviously, China wasn't always the economic giant that it is today. In fact, it's been an amazing transformation over a number of decades, but actually a, a relatively fast trans, uh, transition. Can you just take us through how did we get to now? How has China's economy evolved over time? What are we seeing now? And what's different about how China's economy works compared to a free market economy like the US has? Great question. Well, you know, when China started the modern era of what has been called reform and opening uh, in 1978, 
it, it was at the end of a period of uh, really severe uh, economic stress, the triumph of ideology over any kind of practical policymaking. And so things were really quite a shambles. Per capita incomes at that time, at the end of the 70s, were in current dollar terms like $300 a year. Uh, we would consider that today sort of like the very lower rung of development yeah. uh, challenges in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, for example. That's how uh, serious the situation was in China. And so, you know, one of the unusual aspects of China's economic journey since then is that if your starting point is so diminished, then you can actually have 40 years of double-digit growth, right, just to get back to, you know, poor, but not absolutely immiserated, right? So a lot of what seemed like it was miracle growth uh, is better understood as just coming back to less abnormal. I, I often have the image in my head of a, holding a balloon 10 feet underwater, just a regular air balloon, and letting it go. It's gonna zip to the surface very quickly. But once it gets to the surface, it's not gonna keep rising, right? Mm. And so that's kind of where we are now. And we'll come back and talk about the challenges of now mm. in a second, I hope. But, uh, but these past uh, four decades, five decades, or so of Chinese growth, you know, most important part, I think, of the, the journey, the story was just um, letting practical people, farmers at first, uh, Hua Chao uh, Chinese, which means overseas Chinese, um, who had in previous years or previous centuries in some cases, migrated and become part of a diaspora in Southeast Asia, Taiwan, very importantly, Hong Kong, those professionals, who understood China and Chinese culture and the peculiarities, but also had acquired real market business skills, chose to go back. Uh, leadership in Beijing made it safe and comfortable to debate what was the right way to run a business. Not everything had to accord with um, a singular political messaging out of the Communist Party leadership at the top. And by opening up that space, uh, government didn't even have to offer any really brilliant policy-making answers to how to grow. It just had to create a safe space for business people to do what business people will do. As that progressed and China started to get wealthier, um, more government involvement was required. Um, what I was part of during my time in, at the White House mm -hmm was getting China into the World Trade Organization. And that required uh, a very intentional set of decisions in Beijing, a lot of debate at the time among China's uh, leadership about whether that was good and in China's interest. Um, the, uh, the Chinese leaders who advocated uh, most for joining the world trade system did so at considerable risk. Many of their colleagues thought that was exposing China unnecessarily to too much market pressure, right? And yet that is what took China from the $1 trillion economy it was at the time of WTO uh, accession to the $20 trillion economy it is today. So no country has benefited more from participation in the international economic system. That did require more than just uh, 
local business um, initiative in China. It required a government that saw the benefit mm -hmm. and fought to make sure that it could be embraced. And that's really the story of, of the past two decades. Mm. So for myself, I'm not an expert on China, nor am I an expert on China's economy, but the message I keep hearing all the time is that it's an unstoppable juggernaut, that um, the growth of its economy is going to continue forever, uh, that it's going to disprove that uh, that's not possible, um, and that it's going to be an exceptional country in that regard for many, many years to come. But in the last couple of days, I understand also from reading Rhodium Group's work, is that perhaps that's not actually the case and that it can't continue to pull a rabbit out of a hat every single year, year on year. Dan, can you talk a little bit about um, how China has been growing its economy, how it had a boom and what might be in store in future years? And also, I guess, what the Chinese Communist Party government is telling the world and how that may or may not be the actual picture. Yeah, I'm nervous that you might be spending too much with a few hedge fund barons that I know oh. <laughs> um, who seem to be the ones that have the most breathless sense that admiration this Chinese thing is going to keep going, you know, for, for a good long while. Although Beijing uh, leadership does bear a good deal of responsibility for that as well. There's a political model in place that says that China will double its per capita incomes by 2035, I think. Uh, and these kinds of um, uh, campaign-based targets for growth you know, do imply that China thinks it can keep going and going and going at more or less the kinds of you know 5% GDP growth plus rates that pre-pandemic were taken for granted in China. What's uh, happening right now is that um, longstanding uh, concerns about whether that just made arithmetic sense are being tested in real time in the marketplace. And so if the target, and the target was announced by Beijing for 2023 GDP growth, 5% or better GDP growth this year, that was the target for last year too, but COVID was still messing with things. They missed that target last year. We can blame that on COVID. Now we're post COVID. So it's really the acid test now, like what's the new normal gonna be? And right through today, um, the uh, authoritative central guidance is that China is going to make its goal of 5% growth. Problem is that um, to deliver that, Right in past years, China has had the world's by far largest property construction boom in human history. In 2021, uh, China uh, broke ground and built out um, uh, north of 1.6 billion square meters of property. That is just a lot. What does that compare to in terms of well, like let's, the US? Let's, let's compare it to 2022 where between lockdowns and uh, debt defaults at many of those property developers, uh, the number was only 1.2 billion square meters. At present, if we look at new property starts and what property developers are able to find in the way of financing, whether mortgages from household buyers or bank financing to do what they wanna do, we're running at about a 700 million square meter run rate on an annual basis. 
I don't expect you in the audience or watching to know exactly what to do with a number like 700 million, but just please bear in mind that growth in 2021, two years ago in China, was contingent on two and a half times as much property activity. This is over 20% of the economy is just building stuff mm. like that, building property. So without that past level of property boom, there's no way that the pre-pandemic growth rates of five or 6% should be expected to turn up again. Mm. Now, what could replace that? Is there a handoff taking place from you know, the old investment-led growth to what comes next? And there is a good answer for that in economics. It's the handoff to consumption-led growth, right? That at this stage, more middle-class consumers should be demanding more, consuming more, going out to dinner, all this kind of stuff. Going to shows, games. Going to shows. But more important, you know, furnishing all the property they already bought. Because <laughs> the average Chinese household has about 80% of its total life savings in property, in three or four apartments that it's purchased, in a sector that is overvalued right now and really has nowhere to go but a bit of a fall in property prices, right? M much of that property space is not even finished in terms of drywall and furnished. People are just kind of bought it to hold as an investment property because they thought it was safer than buying stocks and bonds or putting their money with a broker or financial advisor, right? Um, so, you know, are the consumers able to take the baton here and drive the economy going forward? Um, it really was unrealistic to expect that they alone could provide enough growth to drive China to that 5% growth rate this year. Mm. And indeed, as analysts at financial, financial institutions, resource companies, you name it, have watched to see how the Chinese consumer is doing. Lots of videos about people going for barbecue in lots of places, but when you out, add it all up, tally it all up, more striking is that households are putting their savings in time deposits, which means they're locking it up for six or 12 months to get a little bit better return on their savings because interest rates are being held way, way down to help all those property developers avoid going bankrupt. Mm. So we're in sort of a trap here where the consumers can't really show up as much as is hoped. And there's not a lot of other good answers for what could provide to drive growth mm. above say 3% or so. And just on this issue of the overabundance of vacant properties in yeah. China, um, some people here will have heard of the term ghost cities, where there are whole cities full of buildings that are unused and no one's living in them. Dan, can you give a kind of crash course in how are we at that situation now where there are all of these unused high-rise buildings and other sort of public buildings in locations in different parts of China, what actually were the market mechanisms that led to that? And I've even seen, you know, reports yeah. about whole cities being demolished, which I've just cry inside given the housing crisis in Australia and how difficult it is to find a rental here sometimes that yeah. there are houses being destroyed over there. So what actually happened? And if you were concerned about carbon emissions as well, you'd be yeah. pretty heartbroken about building whole. And I know, wonder if Australians still went into... 
well, we, we maybe need to talk about that as well a little yeah. bit um, too. But, you know, you asked what were the market dynamics that gave rise to that? And I'm kind of debating with myself whether I should accept the premise that it was market signals that did it. But it really was. Once Beijing had decided that it was okay for the finance system to keep pushing billions upon billions of dollars worth of uh, readily available credit at fairly low interest to property developers, then you know the rest was market driven. If you can get money for next to nothing and you can build properties and people are nervous to put their money in the stock market, then, well, you probably should keep doing that until it fails, right? And from 2011 or 12 or so after the financial crisis, when the taps got opened up, right up until about now, most of those property developers did very well. Most of the households who bought into more property assets, at least on paper, saw themselves really doing pretty well. Um, where I think, and if you look at what we call tier one cities, tier two cities, the best known Chinese cities, Beijing's and Shanghai's and Shenzhen's, Hangzhou's and those, there's not really ghost property in those cities, right? Um, people are for the most part still willing at a price uh, to take most of what's available. Where we get into trouble is in uh, more remote parts of the country where um, you know whole sort of ecosystems of farming and traditional living in villages were replaced with, as a New Yorker, what I would call property that looks kind of like what we call projects, city projects, mm -hmm. right? That was built in the 50s and 60s and 70s that, you know, you is just horrible, frankly. I mean, it's poorly designed. It's not very human uh, minded in terms of how people live, and windows and light and safety and trees and things like that. It's not necessarily co-located with public transportation that would get people to jobs. And it certainly doesn't uh, replicate the kind of village culture and life and organic um, uh, way of life, right? That people um, had been accustomed to prior to this kind of rapid urbanization and transition of a lot of places um, around China. So in those places where the sort of hubris of state planning, which uh, was on show in China, you know, we still got it bits in, in New York as well. So it's not uniquely a Chinese problem, but the scale of it that took place in China is really quite shocking mm -hmm. when you drive. I mean, it's been hard to get back uh, for most of us mm -hmm. lately. I'll be going back next month for the first time since the pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, but it really is quite striking outside of um, uh, the wealthier parts of the country, how much unused, underutilized mm -hmm. at best um, property uh, has been built out. And it sounds like from our discussions the last couple of days that the way that China's got itself partly into this um, mess is because selling land was a primary way to get capital for local provinces. Yeah. Um, so they just kept selling land to get that capital in. And it's also got me thinking about um, the cost of running a country of a billion people like China um, and some of other some of China's other national expenses. I'm wondering, you know, we don't hear very much about what's 
costing a lot of money in China or what the Chinese government is spending its money on. I mean, if you think of it from a security lens, we know that they're spending a lot on their Navy. Um, Their Navy has eclipsed the size of the United States Navy. So we know that they're investing a lot in their defence and military. But what are some of other uh, expenses that the Chinese government is actually spending on that are putting a lot of pressure on its economy and just to upkeep some of the the economies of scale when you have such a large country with so many people. Um, I remember hearing something during COVID about uh, problems just getting rid of waste. Um, And if there's so much waste that you need to get rid of um, or everyone eats the same food um, and there's all this, you know, waste that you need to get rid of, it just creates problems that you wouldn't even think of because of the scale. Um, But what are some of the major expenses that China is facing that it just has to um, take on board to keep the country functioning? Yeah. Um, uh, So um, uh, just as... Uh, up until pretty recently, there were few constraints on lending capital to the corporate sector to build out everything from semiconductors to chemicals to property and all that. Likewise, the notion of fiscal constraints on the government sector, right, um, seemed like tomorrow's problem, not today's. Um, when we uh, look at what the state is on the hook to spend, uh, we can kind of look at the central government, national budget, um, and then the local government, and it's kind of very different mix of stuff. Mm. At the national level, there's where you will look at and project out from now with steep growth rates, the ambitions in terms of the uh, military build out, the army, the Navy, which you mentioned, um, the planned uh, growth of expenditures for the Public Security Bureau, which is the non-military uh, domestic security apparatus, which you may have heard is quite you know pronounced uh, in in Chinese context as well. Those things are both big ticket uh, growth areas. Um, uh, also on the national side the external um, uh, spending program, the Belt and Road Initiative, which I'm sure you've all um, heard of here, um, was to be this really game-changing, bigger than the World Bank, right? Um, Global deployment of Chinese official development assistance and other kinds of of capital, right? That would change the game in terms of global development, right? So good idea. But a really big, you know, ultimately a pretty big line item that's going to have to be uh, paid for. Turning to the subnational, right? You've got virtually all of the uh, uh, health and education spending requirements for 1.4 billion people. Don't forget those other 400 million, um, <laughs> Haley. Um, although things are trying to shrink, which we might talk about too. But it's that's a huge tab. Um, pension. Uh, funds for everyone who's been associated with the state sector and many others to boot have not been funded. It hasn't been paid in. So promises have been made to take care of people's pension obligations, but government has not put that money in a lockbox or decided how to exactly finance that, right? Um, Decarbonization. China is starting to impress on the global stage with arguably pretty good for a developing country commitments in terms of 2030, 2060 uh, uh, carbon uh, pledges. 
those are going to be expensive. It's going to take a lot of subsidies, right, to enable the transition from fossil fuel intensive activity to less carbon intensive activity. And I haven't even mentioned industrial policy with Chinese characteristics yet. The United States has gotten some attention for its recent forays into spending on uh, 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 semiconductor fabricator subsidies and then uh, some renewable um, energy uh, as well. But by comparison, China's industrial policy spending every year is much bigger, of course, right? So all those things add up. It is trillions of dollars a year today of government outlays, probably one and a half or two trillion, sorry, uh, probably two and a half to three and a half trillion, depending on Look, what we're counting What's a trillion there, there, really? <laughs> and as you said, right, the, the question of how that's going to be financed out into the future mm. is a really big question at the low for those local expenditures for better part of three decades now governments have been told go find something to sell to raise the money to pay for the education and the, the health care don't ask the center for it we've got other fish to fry and the go-to solution to that was selling land to developers so we talked about property, that's over, which is why there are local government fiscal crises popping up all over China right now. So while you'll be hearing people talking about uh, exchange rates and interest rates, various things in the market, you'll be hearing people talk about how much Beijing can stimulate the property sector. The real elephant in the room for the Chinese outlook this year is these local government uh, obligations, whether they can pay their debt service on their existing bonds mm -hmm. that they've issued to people, you know, and some would say, well, you know, it's, it's all Chinese, right? So if Chinese governments here owe money to Chinese financial institutions over here, can't the party just get everybody in a room and say, here's how that's going to work out. The problem with that is that those financial institutions that bought the bonds have 1.4 billion Chinese who have put their savings deposits at those institutions. And if they don't make a return back on the bonds they've bought, they're not gonna be able to in turn take care of their obligations to the Chinese depositor. So it, there's no free ride for anybody, even the Communist Party, even modern China, when it comes to the use of bond financing to try to solve problems like this. Ultimately, China could do something like implement a property tax to come up with a new source of revenue. There are no property taxes for all practical purposes in China, believe it or not. All that will be implemented at some point. The problem is if you decided to buy three or four properties to put your nest egg in for your life savings, assuming no annual one or two or 3% tax on that property, and now all of a sudden you're being given a tax bill hmm. on all that, you're a very unhappy camper. And right now, the leadership is not in the mood to see 100 million uh, um, annoyed middle class houses around the country complaining about property taxes. Yeah. So there's no easy answers to this. A lot of fiscal ambitions for spending. Some of it is, you know, quite good aspiration, in my opinion, developmental, good for, for investment in people. A lot of it is more strategic 
I want to be a big guy in terms of global throwaway to power your stuff, yeah. Haley, you work on. Um, I hope given the choice between those two, they'll take care of basic human needs before they build the next hundred boats. Um, but um, yeah. you'll have to tell me whether you think that's a reasonable well, I think that's, um It's such an opaque yeah. system that it's very hard to tell where they're going to go next. Um, but I think that yeah. Xi Jinping is thinking in very strategic ways um, and that often chooses, a, you know, guns over butter. But look, I'm going to ask one more question and then I'm going to throw to the audience and I'd love to get um, your thoughts and questions. Um, I mean, there's two questions I've got, but I'm only going to ask one and I'm just sort of debating. I think I'll ask this one on demographics and then hopefully in the Q&A we can actually talk about the what is the United States doing about this um, with its industrial policy and how is it trying to compete with China. But just on the demography, I mean, they say demography is destiny and we know that there are a lot more men in China um, than there are women and there are a lot more elderly people. And even in Australia, we're having to pay for aged care. So it's not like China is unique in this situation. But can you talk a little bit about China's demographics and what that could actually mean for future years in terms of its economy? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, um, the, the more that a state leans in to the traditional course of human affairs and <laughs> what people do in their marital bedrooms, one child, you know, limitations and this sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, there's, um, a certain arc of human hubris, not just in China, but elsewhere in the world as well. Um, that by intervening in lots of things, the state could, you know, bring society more quickly to a place of prosperity or more sustainably into the future, uh, any number of ways of expressing those aspirations. Um, and in a, in a very real way, the one-child policy in China that was uh, implemented really only in the 1980s, it's often thought that that goes back to like 50s, 60s, 70s. That's really not the case. It was 19, late 70s, early 80s, when one child really got put to work. And it succeeded in reducing the dependent under 16 years of age population, right? At a time when very few people lived beyond 65 into their 70s and 80s in China. And so from an, an economic perspective, what that means is that the ratio of the number of people in the working age population to the dependent population of kids and elderly became uh, very positive for economic growth. Everybody could be working. Nobody had to stay home and take care of anybody, relatively speaking, mm -hmm. right? And that was supportive of growth in China in a big way. I mentioned you know, letting people decide what to plant where as a big factor in the early days. But the demographic dividends, as we say, um, were also really powerful. In 1975, probably, uh, or 70, um, there were uh, eight dependents for every 10 people working age in China, right? Because the average family had so many kids, right? That is a lot of dependent population to take care of. By the uh, by 2010 or 12, right, that ratio had gone to 10 to 
three, right? So everything else being equal, it just was that much easier to generate tax growth and economic activity and the burden of taking care of kids, um, uh, relatively speaking, was, was much more modest than it used to be. The problem thereafter is that this entire generation of single children, each of whom has two parents and four grandparents who are living longer and longer and longer, mm. then moves forward to a place of terrible uh, demographic tailwind, uh, headwinds, such that uh, you have uh, a country that has a rapidly expanding elderly population without anybody really in position to help take care, mm. right? Um, and this, uh, you know, sort of legacy of state intervention that was supportive of fast growth in the past is now a structural disaster <laughs> for growth going forward, right? So the working age population is shrinking in absolute terms today, right? Um, there's no way to reverse that quickly. And uh, just like the old parable about, you know, she swallowed the spider to catch the fly, right? Um, we're now talking about all sorts of, again, government interventions to get people to have a second child and then a third child. But how can you order everybody who's a party member, for example, to do their duty and have kids, right? When there's 120 men for every 100 women, right? How are you going to do that? Mm. You're not going to be able to do that. And so there needs to be something, I think, of a, a reckoning and, a, and, a, and a, an admission that uh, there are limits to what a state can do. Mm. And that we need, to, uh, we all, I think, globally, but acutely in China and as regards to these demographics, um, need to, um, uh, I think, refresh our, our, our working assumptions um, about what kind of changes are going to be needed in society to get things on a more sustainable um, uh, footing. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, just those numbers, 120 men to 100 women. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Right. And that's before we even consider that, you know, in a modern society, we understand that, you know, a solid 10 to 15 percent of our population is uh, not heterosexual, not necessarily interested um, in a normal um, standard nuclear coupling family. and nuclear family and all that. Yeah. And then we also have some profound sociological forces at work uh, that are uh, very much observed in China, where people are reluctant even to have that first child, given the extraordinary cost of education, mm -hmm. the tough odds of getting into the best schools, um, and uh, uh, limits to income growth mm -hmm. for the two working parents right now, and think about how we're going to cover that mortgage if one of us decides to stay home. And by the way, guess who that one of us is going to be yeah. in China, still in a country where there's not a single woman in the entire leadership structure mm -hmm. of a country of 1.4 billion people. So um, maybe not everybody is as excited to um, get going on, <laughs> on, on, on the nest as they might have been in the past. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of ground in only a short amount of time. I feel like we've only actually scratched the surface, but let's open it up to questions now from the audience. Obviously, you can tell Dan is an expert in many different areas. Um, when you ask your question, can you please identify who you are and where you're from? 
keep your question very short because there will be a lot of them. I even have some from online. And can you please wait for the microphone? So with that, I'll invite questions. Yeah, gentleman over here. Uh, Tony Booth, um, microphone on. We yeah. can hear you. Um, first one, is there much uh, re-examination of the classic of economic history, the Yen Tie Lun, the debate on Sultanine, where you had classic Confucian um, guiding the people to return to Binye, fundamental agriculture, etc., as opposed to what they perceived as government control. Um, and then secondly, I'm a huge follower of uh, Bill Bishop's newsletter, who's written extensively on the property bubble. What level of government and internal debate exists now on what decisions were made and how they decided to place ghost cities in the middle of nowhere mm. with no infrastructure, transport, jobs, mm. etc.? Dan. And how do they yeah. perceive using that asset in the next five or ten years mm. yeah can they chop it up and sell it to australia <laughs> <laughs> um uh to um uh, uh a, a, as as new um bedrock material to regrow the the uh, barrier reef perhaps yeah uh, the concrete <laughs> right um well look um uh what as an economist right um and also somebody who insists on uh, trying to be uh, uh, careful about commenting on things where there's just not reliable information about what the internal conversations really sound. It is part of the fun, but it's also, you know, part of our times that we're all flooded with commentary from all sorts of folks and there's no end to it. And yet, you know, what is the sort of reliable basis upon which to answer and address some of these things? That's something that just bothers me personally. It's, it's just a Dan Rosen thing. And so it doesn't mean that I decline the question. It means that when I answer a question like that, I try to be, as economists say, parsimonious about what basis I have to say anything about it. And I can say this, that uh, even five, but certainly 10 and absolutely 15 years ago, um, even a non-Chinese such as myself uh, in traveling in Beijing um, could participate in a rich, valuable uh, internal discussion and debate, quasi-internal, like with people who are involved pretty close to the centers of power. Um, been into Zhongnan High, the leadership compound, a half dozen times in my life, um, post my one year of government service, not during, right? And uh, it was an earnest, excellent, evolving, uh, growing conversation and discussion and seminar together about the policy choices that were being made, what the policy options were going forward, how to develop better metrics and indicators to gauge how well choices were playing out, right? That was all part of the framework, even Premier Lee. Kachang himself famously said in, I believe, 2014, uh, maybe off by a year, that in an interview with uh, the FT, um, that it was important that uh, the foreign community hold China to account 
in terms of how well its own policy program and progress was going, because that would have, yes, implications for the rest of the world as well, whether China does well or not, right? All of that has changed, is the punchline of this um, uh, little comment I want to make, which is that um, gradually and then more dramatically, partly because of the pandemic, but not just, a uh, insistence on ideological consistency and conformity in Beijing has um, put a cold blanket on the room for academic and intellectual discussion and debate about how things are going, what to think of those stranded assets, wherever they might be, um, and all this sort of thing. There's still some amount of quality discourse that takes place between, say, the World Bank team uh, and Chinese authorities at some of the ministries, right? But even that, if you talk to those folks working at the international organizations, they bemoan that the quality of their interaction to provide that developmental perspective on what's going well, what's not, is a shadow of what it was a few years ago. Um, one can hope that this is uh, a, a phase that will pass and that leadership in Beijing will be telling us soon that that was a necessary, you know, there's a time for debate and there's a time not for debate. And these years, for some particular reason, was a time not for debate, but that it's okay. We're going to get back to um, uh, permitting folks to um, reopen bandwidth for an intelligent conversation. I haven't seen it yet. Um, hoping that and ex actually expecting that of necessity, we will see a break back in that direction, but I'm not sure I would advise you to hold your breath. Mm. Yes, yeah. up the back. Oh, hi, I'm... Uh, we can hear you. Yeah, Peter Trusham, and uh, I'm not with uh, an organization. Um, I'm just wondering, you you're talking about how you counsel people um, about trade. Um, when you're doing your counseling, does eth ethics ever come into the equation? Because, you know, there's certain human rights concerns in uh, China at the moment because of the current regime. Um, what are the ethics of trading with a regime like that, if the trade is actually enabling them to commit some crimes against humanity. Uh, does that ever come up when you talk with, you know, people in government and things like that? Or is it on your agenda? Or Yeah. Uh, well, so what's on my agenda is talking to people in the commercial sector or the government sector about what's happening as objectively as possible, and then engaging in discussion with them about what the implications of that are, what, you know, what, it, what it means. Mm. And with the commercial sector as, you know, a matter of reputational risk, if, if you want to just be very cynical and sort of Kissingerian about it, if, if you want, right, even leave, leaving aside our moral obligation as sentient, you know, human beings to be mindful of crimes against humanity if there's uh, if they're taking place, right? If there's even a chance they're taking place. But even if you want to be totally cold-hearted from a fiduciary perspective as the manager of a company, you have to consider that if you're cavalier 
about availing yourself of uh, forced labor or some other unethical practices just to per, you know, have, find a cost savings and hence greater profitability in what you do, you're putting the brand at risk, you're putting the firm at risk. Um, and you know, that's something that, that needs to be part of the conversation with advisors and consultants. Um, so it is something that we do talk about. We're asked our opinion um, about the evidence of, for example, Xinjiang forced labor being uh, implicated in various sector production chains, right? So, you know, two examples of that, of course, textiles uh, and apparel, where because Xinjiang is a major cotton production uh, center, um, there's, at least in principle, a concern that Xinjiang cotton that makes its way into finished products that are available in our markets might be um, uh, dependent on forced labor. Likewise, um, solar panels at the other extreme of the technology spectrum from picking cotton, right? Um, are produced uh, with very highly uh, purified silicon sand and um, with the input of tremendous amounts of energy. Xinjiang is very big in producing uh, polysilicon inputs to the photovoltaic cell solar panel production chain. In photovoltaics, if you understand the, the supply chain and production chain, there's virtually no point in it where having call it slave labor or forced labor um, makes any sense in how manufacturing works in that. It's extremely high tech, high temperature, it's chemical engineers managing an industrial process. And so on that one, while there were concerns about polysilicon, after digesting as much as I could find available, I kind of felt like the burden was a little bit on those who were uh, uh, concerned about the involvement of uh, forced labor to do a little, go a little further in showing me where in the production chain they think that would be a sensible thing. So that's you know me being very nuanced and fancy, and I have the privilege of doing that, and that has some utility to some companies and governments that I talk to, but it's not my principal job, right? Um, to and, and I don't have the <laughs> intelligence collection assets to really say. In textiles, I think understanding the production process, there's much more prima facie reason to say there could easily be, you know, the wrong practices at work here. And so the burden ultimately has to be on China to permit auditors enough entry into the marketplace to go do the checking out of things not just in a window dressing sort of way, which there's a history of in business, unfortunately, right? We have to be mindful of, but to our satisfaction that we have, we can audit, we can look up and down the production chain and be confident that we're not inadvertently participating in uh, morally reprehensible practices if they're taking place, mm -hmm. right? So, I don't know. That's the best I can do in, in addressing, I think, uh, a very appropriate question. There's a clear and present risk that those things may be happening and, and showing up 
in international trade. We do know unquestionably that there are concentration camp-like facilities employed to try to change the course of history in Xinjiang province, right? And that's enough to make me ask these questions to myself and, and, and make sure that I'm not just trying to paper over them to move on to the next customer I might have. This gentleman here. Hi, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, my name is Evan Donahue. I'm from the Pandemonium Institute, which is an independent uh, games publisher. I'm a U.S. study center graduate as well. Um, so this discussion is about economic uh, competition between the U.S. and China, and we're particularly interested in culture and entertainment. Um, uh, particularly if you have any familiarity with uh, China issuing licenses for video games. Is that something that that is uh, part of a government attempt to control an industry, to uh, in, intervene and, and become an economic competitor with the U.S. or with a more kind of cultural angle of producing particular outcomes in the culture or somewhere in between? Do you have any insights on that? Because that hmm. is of huge interest to us. Thanks. That's a fun question. Thank you. Um, well, let me, let me say one thing very big and then one thing uh, a little closer to the ground. Um, the very big thing is that, you know, while we're framing this tonight, right, as U.S.-China competition, uh, geoeconomic competition. I don't remember if we had an adjective in there or not. We said battles. U.S.-China battles, yeah. battles. Battles, right? <laughs> but, I mean, you know, in, in that grammatical construction, we're kind of using the United States as a placeholder, I think, ultimately, for any liberal market economy, right? Because the vast majority of the tensions and battles that you're hearing about that involve Washington and Beijing, you know, uh, standing off with each other, that same set of concerns, right, um, is um, relevant to uh, Brussels and Berlin and Tokyo and Seoul and Canberra, I dare say as well, right, where we were um, earlier this week. So maybe that's just like a footnote on on this, that it's not just an American phenomenon. And when it comes to gaming, to come closer to where you are, um, some of the, you know, uh, uh, globally most interesting and exciting gaming companies, first of all, are Chinese. There's a tremendous amount of stuff happening there. But then also Japanese, Korean, the Swedes, of course, right? And um, uh, maybe some things are, you know, that are going on here might be very exciting as well, right? And in this one as well, we saw a, an extraordinary blossoming of Chinese productivity and uh, a new space. Um, there was no pre-existing state-owned enterprise doing games, of course. And so there was not... It would be interesting to see what uh, the Communist Party well, created in terms of a game. Make no mistake, the Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army today are using uh, gaming mm -hmm. techniques to enhance and augment their ability to prepare for security scenarios. Mm. I have no doubt of that, right? So there is a fusion now. Mm. And there, there are concerns from your tribe, Haley, the more on the security side, about civil military fusion in China in general. And when you look at the complexity and power of the gaming uh, technologies we have today, is it really so different than the kind of um, work that needs to happen in strategic circles um, to think through, plan, and prepare for, and then ultimately to teach um, autonomous 
um, technology to go out and play this game out scenario out without me. Mm. If I'm not around to push the buttons, you know, then you, a machine, I robot, you robot, um, can go, you know, play this game without me if need be. So there are some really fascinating things I think that are happening at the margin of that debate. But then the, the other thing I would say about it is that, you know, where else in the world would the central government with one fell swoop decree that all children will only spend X hours a week playing games? Beijing has done this, right? And I wish we could do that here. I mean, that's the the initial joke, of course, from everybody who has kids starting yeah. with me is great. Where do I sign up? Right. Sounds good. Right. But um, but then, you know, try to, you know, try to follow that yeah. through and your head starts spinning. Right. Well, especially because um, you can actually make a career out of being a gamer these days. But. Um, look, I know as well as the audience we have in this room, uh, we also have an audience online. So I'm going to give the last question to someone who's watching at the moment. She's a journalist with Politico. Uh, her name is Sarah Schonhart. And she has a fantastic question that goes right to the heart of this major competition that's happening right now between the United States and China and how the US is changing and actually implementing for the first time in decades industrial policy where it is becoming, uh, it was giving subsidies to domestic industry in a protectionist manner to help compete with China because the United States has finally realised that it can't be free and open and have um, a totally free market anymore if it wants to compete. Um, so Sarah's question really goes to the heart of this and then it has an Australia angle as well. And so her question is, you know, if the United States wants to work more with Australia um, in critical minerals, like for electric vehicles and in other clean energy um, industries. And um, the US has also um, created its in, uh, its IRA, um, industrial policy, um, to help subsidise the EV sector. Um, how can Australia take advantage of some of these subsidies that the US government is giving out? And if by taking those subsidies from the US government, does that necessarily mean Australia will have to start to reduce its trade with China? So a very complex, multidimensional question there. But yeah. Dan, do you want to tackle it? Um, uh, I don't know if I can tackle it, but I can chase it down the field a little bit. How about that? Um, and it's a good question. And it's one that we're all going to be talking about a lot for a while to come here, I think. Um, I would first observe that um, the investment taking place in the United States through these uh, government uh, programs, the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, which gets starts to get into renewables and vehicles, et cetera, um, they do entail uh, some amount of subsidy. Um, uh, they're definitely not limited just to domestic U.S. firms, um, that the programs have built into them. The premise that uh, producers from um, uh, uh, other nations um, ought to have a pathway to participation in this. Um, uh, Australia has been specifically qualified under the Defense Production Act um, to uh, be involved in the same way that Canada and some others are uh, in some of these things. Um, so, you know, it's not just sort of you know, we, we shouldn't kind of pigeonhole this as just sort of a plain old protectionist subsidy 101 kind of thing. This is a new paradigm 
and by the way, there have always been government interventions um, uh, to help make sure that industries where there's a huge barrier to entry, let's say, and it's just not going to happen unless government comes in and tips the scales for a while. We wouldn't have Airbuses, for example, if it weren't for that in Europe, right? We wouldn't have semiconductors or the internet if it weren't for that in the United States with uh, DARPA and parts of US government offering some support in the early days before there was any awareness even of what these things meant. So I think, you know, it's not, uh, we shouldn't think of it as sort of like the dark forces coming back or the end of globalization as we know it, provided that it stays in a limited context and it's not sort of the general answer to all of our economic woes, but is you know, comes with a fairly good justification from officialdom about why that's needed for uh, advanced semiconductor computer chips. And in that space, I'm satisfied, and I'm pretty much a, a liberal here when it comes to economics in the American sense. Um, uh, I'm satisfied that the focus on chips and uh, computer chips and getting America on board with decarbonization is about the, the best thing we could possibly doing and as mm. do. And as a citizen, happy to pay that tax bill and see that re redistribution to try to get more going uh, in renewables and all that kind of stuff. Mm. I don't think it would work if we didn't embrace the participation of nations like Australia, which have just crucial role to play in terms of minerals, traditional minerals, rare earth minerals, possibly in the future, the production of green hydrogen uh, and other things that are going to be, you know, the recipe for the future. So no one country, even the United States, is going to be able to solve the challenges we have before us, climate change first and foremost, by itself. Um, the best chance we have at limiting the damage um, to something survivable from uh, what's happening right now climactically on a global scale um, is to keep the doors open to working together as much as possible. Um, that's certainly the spirit of the Biden administration. And I'm even starting to see the sort of green shoots of a little bit of bipartisanship where the other party in the United States starts to see investment in transition toward a lower carbon future mm. as a winning political strategy rather than a way to keep the other guys out of the White House. Mm. Fingers well, crossed. That's a really nice note to end on. And um, just reflecting on the last hour, I can't believe how much territory we've covered from, you know, vacant buildings to gender gap in China to gaming and um, all the other things in between. Really, you've been a tour de force, Dan. It's actually like I was thinking it's like talking to you is like going through an encyclopedia. I, I, I say a word and then I look it up and you've got the answer. Or maybe for a modern audience, it's like a Wikipedia page. But can you please join me in thanking Dan Rosen from Rhodium Group very much? Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate it. <laughs>